you get into your late 20s, you start seeing your life in front of you and you can see, oh, this is how it's going to go. And I can see 20 years down the path and it's either stay on the path or get off the path. And there's no one between. Welcome to The Big Playback. We're back for part two of DJ Fitz, The Birth of the Scene, where we follow Fitz as he moves to Europe to pursue the idea of quitting the proverbial day job, setting up a venue, becoming a booking agent and tour manager, and finally coming into his own as DJ Fitz, resident of everywhere. But we also dig a bit deeper into the world according to Fitz, at what he's learned as an expat in four countries, and where his mind's at after 25 years of making the scene. We both had these engineering careers. And neither of us really were that excited about it. So we were having this conversation. was going, well, we can talk about it, but if we don't do it, we've we got to get off the path. Meet Paul Carlin, longtime friend and co-founder of Berlin Venue West Germany, as well as numerous other music-related ventures over the years. And by both of us having the same uh, kind of thought process or talking it through, we both wanted to do it. And I, I think that, you know, empowered each other because it was really like a huge step into the unknown. And also like a lot of people not supporting you in the kind of career you're already in going thinking, oh, this seems crazy. Like, why would you do that? And, you know, if you did put it all down in front of you and went, ah, it probably doesn't look like the wisest thing, but ultimately you have to try these things. And as I was saying, I, I know I'm very grateful for fits because I don't, I don't think I would have done that on my own. We heard that Berlin was really cool, and so we decided to go on a vacation there in Czech, <laughs> seriously, with the idea of opening up a bar. And I remember, it was funny, because we didn't know shit, basically. We booked a hotel in the most, like, out-of-town neighborhood. It was like the Comfort Inn in Lichtenberg. Yeah, and at that stage, we had met Severin from City Slane, because he had come to New York the summer before to one of those crazy outdoor shows that we were talking about on the last podcast. Do you remember the one with all the chickens running around? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I said, hey, I have to go back to Australia. I was living in America illegally. Audio engineer Jeremy Glover. And so the night that I left, like, we're all at Daddy's, like, having drinks and whatever. And then Fitz was like, well, yeah, we're, we're going to go to Berlin and start this up. And so straight away I was like, okay, yeah, cool, yeah, see you there, because I, I knew that he's the sort of dude that could make it happen. Because I told you in New York I was getting into some funk music and stuff. But in, in those days in Berlin, 8mm for a start had no emphasis about dancing, like, at all. And also... It was very white. I mean, I have to be honest. My first impression of Berlin was to go to bars and go out every night for a year. <laughs> and, and, all, 
and simultaneously try to find a venue to make shows and stuff, which was not as easy as we thought it would be because we, you know, because we never had thought about the legal implications of doing it. It was all just like it was all a pipe dream in the beginning. It's so funny, though. Isn't that true? Like half the shit that if you knew what it was going to involve, you wouldn't do it. I mean, I think that I think that's actually like more than half of the time. I, I think if you knew the reality, you'd be like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So we had been there for a year and we had spent every week walking around the city just looking at buildings not necessarily in the inside of buildings just walking up and down going oh there's a super meeting sign there's a <laughs> super coffin and and talked to a lot of people over that first year who had like oliver from dr pong people like that who were really helpful and supportive and and it, within that year we uh, started working with this guy in uh central called martin leader and he had this uh, S-Band Bogan and he was doing gigs there and then the place got shut down because it was right at Alexanderplatz and it was always it was problematic but that kind of got us started and then we met Stefan Kalaga who became quite influential and Ingo Gergen and the two they were both artists and so he was really interested in what we were doing in Central and then he, you know he said oh, we should do something together and so then we started looking at spots all four of us so Approximately a year after we moved there, there, there was this opportunity came up in Coppelster Tower, right above Kaiser's, and this it was an old mosque, and so we had signed that was we had signed a contract with her, and then the following week they had got offered this touring mummy exhibit, like a big Tutankhamun or something that they were going to have at, at Coppester Tower and then in this space. And I think they were being offered a ton of money to do this. And so they were desperately trying to, to get out of it. And so that they started showing us all these other spaces around Coppester Tower. And one of them was West Germany, which was these just little rooms from a former dental praxis. And we were looking at going, well, this is no good. Um, but she said, look, you can do whatever you want with it. You can knock it all down. We don't care. Will you remove your name from this contract you've already signed? And you can just take this place. And so we came in with a few sledges, knocked out all these walls, did a gig a week later with the still, you know, it looked so rough. Um, but it kind of worked and we never changed it. We started doing it. We just put it together, same crack, no license to do anything. But nobody could fall off that balcony, not like the one in New York where you could die easily, you know. Instead of having gigs, put a sound system, got slightly better than before, putting on shows. And, be, and I mean, the one thing to be said for that, though, whatever kind of deal Stefan Kalaga did, that venue still exists, even though we're long gone from there, you know? From 2005, that's 17 years. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And so we had all of these ideas, but it was really knocked out in a week. And then the following Tuesday, the X models played. And so we didn't, so we so, weren't familiar with the place at all. So we came in, uh, set up for the sound check. That was a real test because they are so loud. And this was the first proper gig. And inside about 20 minutes of them sound check, and the police showed up. They were just going, you know, you have to be quiet from six to eight because. Every Tuesday, your neighbours in the uh, Gemeinde 
are are having a meeting and there's a plasterboard wall behind the stage and they might as well be in the sound check it's so loud in there so I went oh sorry and I went around and met them and explained and, and said oh who we were and we met actor who was a kind of local don and he came around and he saw what was going on and, and he kind of liked us and that was also another thing that was so fits at that time he was really deep into the Turkish psychedelia kind of way before anyone else was listening to it and our apartment in Friedrichshain on the ground floor the windows be open he'd just be blazing Turkish psychedelia all day long so he actor who he kind of took care of anybody's problems rather than the police dealing with things if you had a problem in the neighborhood you went to actor actor took care of it you know he would have a word so anyway he came in and looked at the place you know he's talking he's oh this seems okay but you could still you see he was wondering what's going on here and he ran a little school for kids with learning difficulties right across the corridor and so we were just trying to invite him in and going you know if you want to do like a thing for the community here it's free you know no problem do what you want and so then he got chatting to Fitz and Fitz was like talking to him about Turkish music and so Actor was in his 60s or 70s this was talking to him about music that he had grown up listening to as a teenager. And so then he started burning him CDs and bringing it over to the kebab shop and going, here, there's a whatever record from 1971 that actor had never even heard of. You know, or he knew the artist, but had never even heard the record. And so the, there was a real respect built there. So from then on, we never had a problem. What are your memories of West Germany? I know it's still there, but you saw it in the beginning and in the early okay, days. Okay, that's very interesting. So they also, I mean, in my opinion, at least, they open up Kreuzberg. So at the time when they arrived in the early 2000s, nobody would ever go to Kreuzberg or Neukölln at all. Like everything that was happening was happening in Mitte in Prenzlauer Berg and in Friedrichshain, right? I mean, there are venues that don't exist anymore and there are clubs that don't exist anymore and nobody would go to Kreuzberg. So when I heard that somebody opened up a venue in a former uh, veterinarian uh, praxis, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, we all looked at each other going like, ugh. Why, who would, who would go to a show to Cottbus Tor? <laughs> Honestly. And around 2005 or something like this, this all changed. Like, everything started to happen in, in, in Kreuzberg, and they were the first ones, hands down. Severin Most, general manager of Berlin independent record label City Slang, an unofficial mayor of Kreuzberg. Yeah, and again, like it was like a rift in time and space almost. Like everybody that came into the place were like, okay, this is what we have to deal with. I mean, the toilets there were insanely horrible. Uh, you know, I mean, the bar uh, was was just like a ramshackle thing. And but at the same time, it created an unparalleled atmosphere. Right? You like it was like a it was like a living room. You would. Be able to come in there and be sure as hell would know somebody in there. 
you know, when I was younger, I was a fan of uh, these Love and Rockets comics uh, from the 80s from the Hernandez brothers. And and I remember walking into West Germany and I was like, that's what this must have felt like, you know, like a really open, weird scene of people uh, coming together. And yeah, just I was absolutely chaotic. And sometimes it was also weird because you've sometimes you had people come in and they looked at the place and like how it looked like and everything. And they were like, uh, saw this as, as an invitation to fuck things up, you know, like, and, but it wasn't about that. It wasn't about, um, I was fucked up because they just spent the money on something else. Like they didn't have much money to begin with. The shows were always cheap, you know, like drinks were cheap. The, the people that played there, like if it was packed, you would walk out with uh, like a lot of money. It felt very chaotic, but also very uh, thriving at the same time. I remember very vividly the first time I met Fitz. Sanaa Yamada of Munduo. I had come on the road with wooden ships in the summer of 2008 to sell merch. Ripley had just met Fitz and he had offered to book a tour for the wooden ships who were just getting started and they'd never toured abroad before. And we were going to try and be in Berlin for a little while that summer. So we ended up subletting Fitz and Paul's apartment. And I think I was behind the merch table and he came by and, you know, this big blustery Irish brogue, horse, horse, horse. (laughs) I just got such a good feeling off of him. He told me, that when I got to Cutbuster Tour, how to get to West Germany and to come up and find him and we would exchange the key. And so like, I guess it was probably a week later, I came to Berlin for the first time and followed his directions. I was walking up the stairs to West Germany, just being like, am I in the right place? (laughs) Because this looks like an abandoned dentist office. And then I walked into, into West Germany and there was The atmosphere was so amazing. It was just like electric and there was some show going on. It was packed and smoky and people drinking and just the, like the vibe was so special. And I was just like, wow, this is incredible. Like I so excited that this exists and that I'm here and I fits like flagged me down from behind that kind of dilapidated bar gives me a huge hug and like hands me a key to their apartment you know as a tour manager as well i've traveled all over the world and been in all kinds of spaces and i've never come across anything that's even close to being as crazy as that space is bands show up and you can prepare them for like okay you know in an advance gone there's no sign. There's no real, doesn't look like anything. You have to walk up all these stairs, but you're on the right track. And they still always get lost. That's my abiding memory of predominantly American bands showing up, going, call, I'm going. And also at the time, they didn't really, they couldn't call or they didn't have roaming. or And then they'd just be wandering around trying to find this place. And you'd be out in the street looking for them. And then they go, oh, can't believe it. And then they'd walk and then they'd just be looking around going, what is this place? What, why are we here? And also you get this quite quite a few times, this kind of kickback of like, oh, this is not, this is not going to work. This is, and you go, it'll be cool. 
just just go with it for a bit. Don't don't be don't dismiss it right away just because what what it looks like now. And nine nine out of ten times they will come back to you at the end of the night, go, oh, that was amazing. That's an interesting point that it actually requires a little bit of faith on your part. A lot of faith because it's so it doesn't look like it should be a music venue or even like an art space. It looks so raw. And I think that's going back to that first, you know, we were talking about earlier about knocking it all out with sledgehammers and having cabling hanging everywhere and just kind of like plasterboard and going, that'll do. And then, okay, that that actually is good enough. Let's just leave it like that. You talk about like creating spaces, like that is a huge part of it actually, is being able to yeah. create a feeling that people can come into and feel. That's exactly right. Like creating a space, it isn't really about the physical space. There's an electricity when you can sense that all the people in a place want to be there. And they want to be there because they keep having these experiences that are really um, unusual or illuminating or that change their minds about something or that introduce them to something they've never been exposed to before. There's like a life to it that's feeding you. It also, it creates this sense of community because you end up drawing in people who feel fed by the same things. And do you remember what it was like when you got there? Like, what did you, do you remember what you discovered? Like, especially the first time you went to see whatever Fitz and Paul had going on. Do you remember what your first impressions were? Well, uh, yes, I do. But it was really intense. So basically when I went there, Fitz and Paul were putting on this show, um, Mark Stewart and the Mafia with Adrian Sherwood, which just kind of happened to be like my most favourite thing ever. So this is like actually a legitimate show because it was at Festival Kreuzberg, like a proper venue. Yeah, so I was freaking out because they were my heroes. So I wanted it to be right. Um, That's all I remember. Like it wasn't like walking through Treptower Park being like, oh, wow, the flowers. It was just like sitting in the internet cafe, like emailing the promoters, but trying to work out the German keyboard where the at symbol is in a different spot and four dudes smoking next to you. And it's just like, oh, my God. So you got there just to check the place out and they immediately put you to work? Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you expect Fitz to, like, hang out and give me a guided tour of, like, Checkpoint Charlie? Fitz and Paul came. They took all this exciting stuff from the U.S. over, and, uh, you know, they knew everybody. They were the first ones to put on shows for all the bands that you know and love, you know? Like, they were just, like, fearless, and also they came, and, and not and not fearless and arrogant, but more, like, with a... um. You know, they embraced everybody and they like they would listen to people. And so everybody loved them, basically. Like they would go to places and they would talk to people. They were the first ones to put on the first non-techno event at Berkheim, if I'm not mistaken. And we're all like, how did you do this? How did you put on a show at Berkheim? And they're like, uh, we just emailed them. <laughs> 
first tour he booked was for liars in Ireland. Um, and that got him, I'm pretty sure that got him started. And then he started tour managing a couple of bands and then he started booking some more tours. For example, if you could trace like the liars career. So he was putting on liars first shows in New York. Angus moves to Berlin and Fitz also moves to Berlin and they're probably booking a tour and he's going, oh, I could book you shows in Ireland. I know some people in Ireland. So it's like, okay, well, that's great. Let's do it. Can you go on tour with us as well? Okay, I'll do that. It kind of just happened. So it's a lot of like, I'll just do it because it's having the can-do attitude. Eric Copeland of Black Dice. Part of me even being willing to do a lot of these shows was like, you've got to come along because otherwise I'm just like in an airport by myself. And for the most part, when he would bring something to me, it would be like one of my first questions, just being like, what's the pay and are you coming? Musician Brad Truex. Tell me about being on the road with Ritz. Cranking loud, like global psych jams and, you know, like talking about meat. <laughs> Bowls of bacon, which we thought he was like totally fictionalizing. Like we're just like, of course. I mean, it be, just became this sort of inside joke. But sure enough, we pull into this gas station in Holland and at the counter, there are these <laughs> bowls of bacon. <laughs> playing this festival kind of like a DIY festival I won't say where okay and we had a nice show it was super fun and Fitz once went to go get paid at some point and the promoter was like yeah yeah yeah, we'll work it out tomorrow and Fitz was like actually we're catching a plane in the morning like he was like well I'll just mail it to you or whatever and I remember watching (laughs) watching Fitz basically be like no we're we're walking to an atm right now and it wasn't threatening but there was like no option involved and i felt like i was it was so professional in this way where it was like he was so nice to him the whole walk to the atm and then took the money and we all went to the same bar but he was like i don't trust that guy i just appreciate having somebody else deal with it in a way which i don't know if i would have had the tact to be honest i think i would have lost my temper I remember when he went to Istanbul for the first time and then he came back. I think that was like a real game changer moment for a lot of people here in Berlin because he introduced me and a lot of other people for the first time to uh, Turkish music because it was something that we never heard about. Like it was music that... I think was a bit lost in time. I mean, when he went to Istanbul, it was before the internet and everything. I mean, internet existed, I'm sorry. Like, not really. No, exactly. I think it was either in a bar or a record store. As we were walking in on the wall, we saw this poster saying, uh, Japanese psych rock legends, ghost, European tour coming up. James Hakan, who together with partner Eilin, are stalwarts of the independent scene in Istanbul, forming Bant Music and Art magazine, as well as promoting live shows throughout Turkey. I can't remember from where, but we found the booking agent's uh, email address, which was Fitz. We emailed him. I think the reply came like in half an hour. <laughs> so, yes, we, uh, we, we will you know, definitely want to do this. The band is like six people, plus the manager has to come also why does the manager have to come? You know, does he speak Japanese? 
you know, these kind of questions. Anyway, the band came and it turns out it's this uh, Irish guy who loves Turkish psych music. As soon as we met Fitz, we realized his knowledge for Turkish psych music was amazing. And back in those days, in 2007, Turkish psych music wasn't so popular outside of Turkey. So it was really interesting to get, a, get to know a foreign person who had this knowledge of the old stuff. And in just a couple of days, all the record stores in Istanbul knew about Fitz. His name spread out so quickly. He went to a record store and then talked to this guy, as he usually does. And an hour later, this dude is like, uh, come to my house, I have more records. And then he drove to the Asian side, visited this guy, and just got back to Berlin with, I think, around 70 records from that time and from the trip and started to DJ this. And we're like, we couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah, he even has specific songs where I feel like he was the first to play it. And then like five years later, it would be played at like an LCD sound system show or something. And you're like, I know that started with this. In the beginning, it was only one day that we spent. And we're like, he seems like a really nice guy. But, you know, we don't know him that much. So each time we come together, this is like, you know, uh, a new chapter opens. And we're like, oh, he's a DJ. And then we see, we book him a DJ gig in Istanbul. And we're like, he's an amazing DJ. And I mean, just knowing Fitz, uh, we opened so many doors for each other. Uh, you know, after that, you know, he introduced us to so many uh, amazing people and artists. And also we introduced him to so many good names from Turkey, uh, not only record collectors, but also, you know, musicians and artists and friends that he still has and, you know, hangs out. Yeah, and it's it's like a private VIP card that you can use. If you go to someone and you know he knows Fitz and you introduce yourself as I'm a friend of Fitz, then everything changes in a good way, you know. And I, again, he, he's an amazing DJ because he's not playing the hits. He's not playing to the crowd. He's just playing mostly music. You have absolutely no idea what it is. And some of the most amazing parties I was at were in Paloma Bar with him DJing. About 50 people. And I would say if you polled those 50 people that were in it, could they name any of the songs that he was playing? There'd have been very few who could maybe even got one or two. Completely obscure music, but they're all just dancing like crazy. So when we met and he was asking me about all, all of this, like, Japanese psych and stuff, I was like, dude, I, I listen to, like, funk and soul and hip-hop and reggae or whatever, and he was like, oh, dude, really? And I swear, in two weeks, he had the heaviest reggae, the heaviest funk, like, And, and and he started teaching me about all of this stuff. And the other thing is that he was collecting records, but he was not collecting to, to, to save it up or to put it on Discogs, which it didn't even exist back then. So he collected records actually to share it with people. Like that was his whole point. Like he was looking for music and new music 
to share it because that was 80% of his conversation. And it was never about, I have this and this record. What do you get? It was like, dude, you should check out this and this noise record. It's fucking amazing, you know, or this and this Peruvian band, they highly influenced Animal Collective, you know. I mean, and that's, I think that's what's so adorable and amazing about him. He shares his knowledge and his wisdom and his joy and his spirit with everybody. And um, that's why I love him. Producer Kelman Duran. I mean, I think like that at nighttime, it would be kind of quiet, Azores. And um, I mean, typical of Fitz, like if anyone could find a party, it'd be him. And he told me there was a guy walking around like in a Superman outfit. Um, kind of enticing people to go, I think, to a strip club or something. And apparently he DJed all night at this strip club. And he said it was a pretty rough place. And he said the strippers were quite upset at him because he wasn't playing their music, obviously. Um, I think he might have told me he played like Jesucristo, that Roberto Carlos song, which probably really pissed him off. He just kind of finds this these kind of raw places to actually like just kind of have fun and still like have that exuberance about DJing because you could have like paid me to DJ and I would have been like no I'm good like I probably it just like I would be too awkward in that situation nor would I know what to play whereas Fitz doesn't care and to him it was just like yeah like let's get in trouble you know and his favorite phrase tranquilo carajo I think that's the only Portuguese words I know, and it's because of him. They even DJed at in a beach club in Bodrum, which is like a fancy beach clubs and you know fancy cars around. And one of these beach clubs is owned by a super famous Turkish pop star called Hande Enar. And we booked Fitz and Wooden Wisdom to her beach club, and it was so weird because it's like this weird beach club and nobody gives a shit about the music actually they're just there to see elijah and party and you know drink really super expensive booze but even there like fitz he wasn't nervous at all and he did play some really good stuff that took away the stress from people and took away the awkwardness of the atmosphere you know yeah, he has this kind of like resident DJ feel but everywhere. It seems like people know him everywhere. But he's quite humble about about it all. You know? And when he doesn't like the music, or when he thinks that the atmosphere around the music is more hype, he kind of lets you know. And I really appreciate that from, from someone who I think is probably still like understands like the raw quality of music. So I think the older you get, I guess you lose a bit of that fire. Just... And I don't think Fitz has ever lost that. Using music as a bridge, Fitz has managed to connect people and communities, invigorating disenfranchised neighborhoods, and drawing people together by creating spaces for them to belong, all while steadily becoming a household name himself as a DJ. Canvassing all manner of European boutique festivals and popping up in the most unlikely of scenarios, from nightclubs in Turkey to press conferences in India, often alongside Wooden Wisdom featuring Zach Cowie and actor Elijah Wood.
It's funny how the character of the internet figured into this story. Fitz's career seems to have spanned the full transition from the early years, when email was something you checked once a week from an internet cafe, to the present, where most aspects of our lives are conducted online in one form or another. It's almost an ironic parallel, as his work revolves entirely around physical records, face-to-face conversation, and frequent in-person travel. Which is not to say that he's ever avoided the digital, either. Basically, any alternative to connect with people or get a job done is automatically on the table. In fact, in 2009, he created DudeCast, a DJ podcast with cohort Mike Stoke and Rory McAndrews, before many of us even knew what a podcast was. Legend has it they just emailed somebody at Apple asking to get it offered on iTunes, and the reply came back simply, sounds good, send it over. And voila! And it's still running today. Probably because it's so old, it predates recent restrictions regarding playing music on podcasts. Beyond that, his last 10 years working with contemporary artists from Africa, the Middle East, and Asia meant that he was every bit as likely to be found booking shows via Viber or WeChat as via email. And he apparently had one of the first 100 accounts on the newly rebranded WISE online banking network. Fitz hasn't remained exclusively in the world of music either. Having co-curated a literary festival in Porto in 2019 and 20, during which, in an attempt to book Please Kill Me author Lex McNeil, he found himself in an unusual phone call in which the author recounted for Fitz how he'd survived a plane crash in the 70s, for which reason he no longer traveled by air. Fitz was halfway to booking McNeil passage for Portugal on a cargo ship when COVID halted all such practices. Fitz's seemingly endless font of stories is no accident, and there's a reason they're so engaging. It's 100% lived experience. And not surprisingly, when you speak with him, he tends to let the stories do the talking. But I wanted to dig specifically into his perspective on all those years of living and working abroad. In a sort of poetic plot twist, his old comrades Rachel Nelson and Eric Sajikowski from Brooklyn art space Secret Project Robot just happened to be in the process of relocating to Fitz's now home city of Porto, with plans to open yet another space in which Fitz will surely be involved in one way or another. And it's somewhere along these lines that we drop into a final interview, hashing out a few topics of personal interest, the fabled golden visa, tech bros, and our own precarious positions within gentrification, ultimately alighting on some of the more nuanced points of positive versus negative investment. This is another example of of big companies investing in what they think is the future via the underground and stuff, right? So in the days that I was doing that with Paul, all of this hype was just hearsay in bars, right? I mean, there was no article in a newspaper you know, it was just one guy telling another guy and another, you know, that kind of thing. That wasn't basically the beginning of the internet. Now, in New York, in Bushwick, there are massive signs at bus stops in Bushwick for Portugal. Move to Portugal if you're an artist. They have these slogans like, um, live and work within 20 minutes from the surf. You know what I mean? So the the mainstream, i.e. big airlines and investment uh, real estate companies, have been actively for the past 10 years investing in anything they think where people are going to go. I mean, it's all uh, relevant to globalization, you know. But it's really true. Like, 
Because in our time, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like I'm 150, but in our time, there was nothing like that ever. I'm telling you, I arrived in Berlin and I ended up in a fucking uh, Eastern Berlin ghetto of proletarians in Lichtenberg the first weekend I stayed there. Anyone standing in New York tonight and going to a hip party and hearing about Lisbon, they'll have every information. They're going to end up in Alameda when they show up for the weekend. Okay, so my original understanding of the golden visa was you just, you pay 500,000 euros in property, whatever that buys you, and you just automatically get the visa. Yeah, that was that was always. And then, and then it got, they got overwhelmed because it, it I mean, it, they, they basically lie all the time because they need money from abroad. So they, they, they said like, oh, the golden visa... Not many people took it up, which is total bullshit because... Tons of people. Yeah, they wouldn't be cancelling it if hardly anyone took it up. So basically, the like, yeah. swaths of Lisbon and Porto are owned by investment funds. Because I know a lawyer in Porto who did a lot of golden visa applications like for residencies. What happened was, some Israeli company would be like, oh, wow, we can go there and we can buy 10 streets worth of apartments in in Porto and then they just put the name of one guy from the investment fund and he gets a visa or it can be done with a guy from Dubai or a guy from China it doesn't matter and then as long as there's it looks like a person getting a golden visa then they could do it now they have a huge housing crisis in Portugal because no one from Porto I mean find me a Portuguese person who lives anywhere near the center of Lisbon it'll be a miracle really yeah. And now it's connected to some kind of like um, like regeneration project, right? Like it has to be something that is investing socially. So you have to like rebuild something. Yeah, which is a good plan. But yeah, it should have been like that in the beginning. Because like at least if you always made it like that, then you would get people who come there to do something constructive and not just to be rich and own flats that they can turn into Airbnb. So they got rid of that. And there was a lot of EU pressure on them to get rid of it because nearly there was a lot of European countries after the financial crash in 2008 who did this, like Greece were doing it. I think it just, you can still do it in Greece. But now more crisis is coming, more financial crashes are coming, and the Portuguese have invented a new way of getting the house prices to go up, and that is to get this thing called the D7 visa. Because you know what's really hilarious about this is that they wrote down that you need to earn $3,000 a month minimum, then you can qualify for this. And just to clarify, the D7 visa is the digital nomad visa. Yeah. It's like they're acting like that's a big salary. But even people in Portugal can earn up to that easily enough if they're in those digital coding programmer jobs, you know? I thought the average monthly wage in Portugal was like 1,000 euros a month. No. Yeah. but. Not for guys who are programmers. Ah, so you're saying this is speaking strictly to tech people. Yeah, tech bros. Yeah, like if you work at Bingo Dos, you're not getting. But I mean, remember, like it's 3000 a month before taxes and stuff. So if you, if you live in New York or you live in Sydney and you work for a startup organization on the internet, they easily be paying you $3,000 a month. Right, so... It's going to put the house prices crazy again because I'm not saying they're all going to go buying a house immediately, but they're all going to be renting them. That's another thing. I really hate tech bros more than I hate oil barons, you know, because 
I feel like oil barons are like, man, I'm tired. I just want to go live in the fucking countryside and eat expensive steak somewhere, you know? But like these tech bros, they spend their time wanting to say, oh, look, I've got the newest record by Sin Kane. I don't know. I'm not blaming him. He's cool. But you know what I mean? It's like they want to pretend like they're in the scene and, you know, it's just, I mean, it's great that people want to come, but I mean, I have a lot of friends from Barcelona and they told me that Barcelona city is totally destroyed because of these kinds of policies, you know, like that's the crack. I would love to tell the story um, because like, there's just so much material there. I mean, it's, it's amazing to be one of those people like yourself who can just shuttle from place to place and make something amazing happen here and then move somewhere else, make something amazing happen there. But I would just love for someone to talk about the reality of why we're doing that. We represent a very specific part of the gentrification process of cultural and creative workers who cannot afford to live in the places that we are helping to make valuable. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that that's the that's the big problem. Is like so you go like when I moved to Berlin, it was it was because I wanted to get out of the New York rat race. A and B, it had to be something that you could build something without having to pay an extremely large amount. Of, I mean, I I didn't move to Oslo. Right. All right. Uh, uh, all right. I didn't, I didn't move to Singapore. Then subsequently, we go to Berlin back in the day. We start venues up. We did. And those venues were great. And now they're talked about as legendary. And they are referred to as remember the good old days. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, some people could say that that's kind of one of the main reasons that the crazy prices started. But I mean, I also talk to people in Porto. Like I was, I was talking to this girl the other day for, who was an artist here in Porto, and she moved here ten years ago. She said it was like a zombie movie in downtown Porto ten years ago. Tourists went to hotels near the Douro or in Boa Vista. Rarely ever showed up downtown. Like it was really, really dingy. Most of the streetlights didn't work. When was the moment that you think it changed? I mean, I, I know this sounds like the really easy answer to the question, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think it really changed when low-cost airlines... It, I mean, it's really funny because I come from Ireland and so do Ryanair, and they're not anything I'm proud of. They're the biggest shower of pricks on the face of the planet. We all know. But they, they do have a huge influence on that, man. Uh, because when they come, they, they bring everybody there for practically nothing and then it's like i always remember bill graham said you remember um the concert where the stones had the hell's angels uh, altamont you know the promoter from san francisco he always said that the biggest mistake that they made was not putting the hell's angels as security guards he said it was not charging at the door and he and his point was when you don't charge when it costs practically nothing Everyone will come. I mean, cool people will come, good people will come, but you open it to everybody. And he said that causes problems, and it's true. I mean, I'm not trying to say that everyone who has no money, I'm not talking like that. 
And Ryanair, in my opinion, are like, they're like the Altamon story. It's like every fucking annoying prick in the world will show up at the airport because they're bringing you, they're bringing you for three euro. Why wouldn't you go? But I mean, that's the, that's the thing. So, you know, like all of this thing, we're talking about the gentrification. And basically, like, it comes back to Bill Graham saying, if you charge, it's a weird thing. It's like, and I noticed that over the years, you, even if it's a, even if it's a euro, it's actually, it's, it's not about the price. So there's the rub. Cultural and creative workers living in their own chronic financial precarity and in search of a viable life, doing what they do best in every place they land, building. Yet with the fruits of their labor only displacing themselves as major investment comes in to capitalize off their efforts, once again pricing them out and forcing them elsewhere. Their own investment never recouped, and their next steps followed ever more closely by big industry on the lookout for its next venture. We've spoken more than once on this podcast about the DIY legacy and the many forms it's taken, without being too explicit about why. But now that we've come to the end, maybe we can afford to labor that point a bit. No, it wasn't just a 90s nostalgia trip romanticizing one of the few real Gen X success stories, not entirely anyway. For all its hiccups, the ideologies driving the DIY movements were meant to counteract the mega-energy of the rock touring template minted in the 60s and 70s. Massive stars in massive arenas, major labels and major egos, decadence, degradation, and all the issues in between. In many ways, the resizing of the DIY punk approach meant cutting out the middlemen, but also removing barriers which insisted music could only be played a certain way, on a certain scale, and to a certain audience. Post-pandemic, at the close of 2022 and on the eve of 23, it's pretty clear that the music industry, like most industries, is, if not in crisis, certainly in flux. Even for newer formats like DJ and rave culture, change is inevitable. Whether brought on by climate issues or tectonic shifts in technology, it's likely we're headed for an entirely new paradigm. So if nothing else, the moment we find ourselves in now could surely benefit from figures like Fitz. By supporting them, valuing the work that they put in, and the spirit of experimentation that gets them there. And maybe by redefining what we value, because there are many kinds of investment, not just financial. Beyond that, when financial investment does come, can we direct more of it into the hands that are putting in the work to make things happen in the first place, the ones who are starting from scratch? Ditto that for musicians. This work cannot be done for free. So here's my final thought, listeners. As awesome as Fitz is, he's not even the only one out there. So wherever you're listening from, find the people near you making things happen. Ask what they're up to and ask how you can help. And maybe ask while you're at it, what kinds of organizations are actually getting support? In other words, who is getting paid and how? And just keep asking. That's it for the Big Playback Podcast with me, your host, Margaret Munchheimer. Thank you for listening. And thank you again and again to everyone we've spoken with over these episodes. It's been a pleasure and an inspiration. Brought to you by Legess Who?